Hello, everyone. My name is Ben McElroy. Hey, everybody. I'm Justin Woodcock. And I'm William Fick. And uh, we're going to be discussing uh, nuclear weapons in the 20th century. Um, Justin is a financial planner. I work in the solar industry, and Will is an aspiring museum director. Yes, I am. Gotcha. Quick shout out to our uh, our video sponsor, New Horizons Solar Solutions, for uh, all your solar needs. All right, guys, uh, getting into the topic a little bit. Um, you know, we can kind of start wherever you want, but typically, I when I consider nuclear weapons, I like to kind of take a step back and think about what was going on before like nuclear weapons were being used. And so do you guys have any, any commentary on like the, the bombing of Japan, the bombing of Germany during World War II, anything like that? We absolutely should have bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I think Truman made the right call. We're just jumping right into it. Huh? I know, dude. He just went right into the sauce. He's like, not only do I think this was a great idea, we should have done it sooner. <laughs> Will, do you want to you expand on that? Yes, so a lot of controversy around the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki kind of stem from the fact that we're thinking about those decisions in cold blood. We are not fighting an active war. We're not fighting a world war right now. So we can look back with the time and the patience that it requires to criticize these kind of decisions. But in 1945, you can't ignore the kind of political environment that Truman was operating in. Because if he spent all the time and money on the Manhattan Project, developing an, an atomic bomb, a war-winning weapon, and didn't use it, that would have been the end of his presidency. And he would have, it would have been political suicide for the guy. Yeah. I think that's a really, really interesting take, Will. And that's important to point out because a lot of people are just like, oh, it's horrible. You know, it, it was, there, there, there was, there should have been another way. But I mean, if you think about how newspapers were printing headlines that already said, you know, like Dewey Beach Truman, if he had not used the bomb, then that truly would have been the reality. And I mean, you, if you think about the thousands of men and women we lost over the course of, you know, 1942 to 1945, imagine if you are the family of a fallen soldier, a fallen Marine in the Pacific, and the president comes out and says, says, you know, hey, everyone, we've invested billions of dollars. We put quite literally some of the brightest minds on the planet to work on this. Uh, we had a war winning weapon and uh, we invaded Japan and your son died. I'm sorry. Here's your flag. Um, here's his pension. I mean, there'd be they'd be suing the federal government left and right. And not only that, Truman's political career would be over. Well, and I think it's pertinent to remember that, like, you know, Truman didn't know about the project until he was the president. Uh, and so it's really, it's really interesting to understand like, Hey, like, you know, FDR had just won his fourth presidential term and died shortly thereafter. And all of a sudden now the haberdasher from what state is he from? Missouri. Haberdasher from Missouri, and he's just like, you know, a regular Joe Schmo dude that FDR shows as his VP because he would help the votes is now handed the reins. And like, you know, I think back to like something that a, a famous podcaster said about the previous presidency, like, they're like, did he take him into the office and be like, all right, this is where the aliens are. This is what you need to know about Russia. This is actually what's going on with China. Like, I'm just imagining like, some Joe Schmo from Missouri who was like, you know, a relatively little league politician compared to like the greatest president the U.S. had seen up until then. And then being like, hey, we have this billion dollar project that's going to like kill 
hundred thousand people every time you use it. Like it would just be like it'd just be a it'd be a perspective shift, you know, like never before had anything like that even been theorized, you know, like you couldn't conceptualize that. Yeah. And like you said, Truman was just the political equivalent of just a regular guy. I mean, this is a guy who broke down in tears saying that he wasn't man enough for the job, let alone to be the first president to figuratively push that button. And yes, it is terrible that we had to do that. We had what we, it was terrible what we did to Hiroshima and it was even worse that we had to do it again for Nagasaki. But if we chose not to nuke him and we had to invade Japan, it would have been even more terrible and the war wouldn't have ended for years longer. I mean, all the men on the mainland islands of Japan, they weren't there. And the Japanese economy and the industry was in shambles at this point. And they were training the women and children in the streets with sharpened bamboo sticks to repel the American invaders that they that everybody knew was were eventually going to come. And these were not going to be trained soldiers in an enemy uniform directed by officers to attack you. These were going to be people who almost are civilians. And that would have been a whole nother can of worms to open as to what we should do with these people. You know, if they're trying to kill you with a sharpened stick and you have a machine gun and tank divisions, like what kind of a battle would that be? Yeah, it's not even at that point, it boils down to it's not even just you know, a rebel force in a country that you're attempting to occupy and pacify, it's almost makes the jump to like state sponsored insurgency. Um, they were absolutely not going to surrender. So I think that's a great point as well. Well, it's, it's interesting to me to, you know, because again, our perspective as 21st century people looking back is so different. Again, we're in cold blood during a hot blooded thing. Like, looking back on America's stance on Pearl, like, you know, Japan after Pearl Harbor, after like the Pacific theater and just the absolute like buzzsaw of human life. And just like people coming home with no limbs, no arms, no legs, missing eyes. Like, you know, it, it was such a heated and like emotional period. And now for us to look back and be like, well, like the ethics of whether or not they should have used this is such an interesting thing because we weren't raising any eyebrows at us like bombing Germany, you know, like we, we leveled Germany and hundreds of thousands of people died in these bombing attacks. And like, you know, you never hear about it because it's not as flashy as the battle of Britain. It's not as flashy as like, you know, midway or, you know, all these different battles that like catch our attention because they're full of those heart wrenching stories. Like in the daily grind of war at the world level, you know, every day thousands of people died. And it wasn't necessarily, go ahead. No, 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 no. Sorry. Please finish. No, you're good. I was just going to say, like, it wasn't always like swinging battles, like between the German and, you know, USR, USSR forces where like millions of people were involved, but like daily skirmishes, you know, you pop out of a foxhole and get shot in the face. Like, definitely, definitely. Um, even just taking away like the daily battles or the large battles, you know, the, the titles that maybe the general populace knows a little bit more like Midway, um, Battle of the Philippine Sea, you know, Battle of London, uh, the fall of Berlin, all that stuff. When you talk about the morality of dropping an atomic weapon on not an opposing military force, but on the civilian population, of another country that you are at war with, which you're not just at war with, you are at total 
war with. Um, Europe had been experiencing total war since 1939. China had been experiencing total war since 1937, uh, based on the campaign that the Japanese were waging against them. Pretty much there were no holds barred, obviously. I mean, as, as everyone knows, World War One was a game changer in the sense that no one ever knew it could be that bad. And then World War II came over the top and did it again and pretty much showed that when the stakes are that high, humanity is not afraid to say there are no rules. Civilians are targets. Children are targets. Hospitals are targets. I'm simply not saying that that's right, but I am saying that those options are not pulled from the table like they would be in a modern war because we haven't seen that type of situation. So when you think about you know, you drop an atomic bomb on Hiroshima or Nagasaki and 70 to 80,000 people die. A week beforehand, when we're firebombing Tokyo, 70 to 80,000 people die in that instance. You know, thousands more die after the fact from fires that consume entire city blocks. And, you know, there's not enough spots for people to be treated for their burns. So when you talk about the morality of an atomic weapon, uh, obviously, it's dangerous that one single thing can cause that kind of destruction, but we were causing that kind of unparalleled death and destruction before we even dropped the bombs. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting thing for us to, to say like these atomic weapons, because what, 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 what was used in Japan and what is currently at the disposal of several nations is not even equivocal. Like I was just looking up the the yield of blast power of you know the bombs that we dropped in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. They're like sixty, you know, kilotons. Like it's just it's just like a large amount of TNT, if I have that correctly. Um, very very large, very large amount of TNT. Right. Very Actually, large. I was wrong. It's fifteen kilotons of TNT, which again is no joke. But now in the current era, the weapons that we use use bombs like that to detonate the actual bomb. And so that's like the fuse for a, for a bomb that we would use in today's standards, you know? So it, it's definitely a thing that is scaled and it's not, it's not, it's not linear. It's exponentially more powerful. And so if we're terrified and like, we've seen the destructive force of something that now is like child's play, it really begs the question of like, you know, what, what does the future look like? And we'll, we'll circle back to that. Cause I think that's the ending of the podcast, but I mean, it's, it's a different, it's a different world now for sure. It is. And when you compare atomic weapons that are measured in, in kilotons, and then you take nuclear weapons that are measured in megatons, like those are completely different classes of weapons. And then you made a good point where nuclear weapons require an atomic detonation to set them off. And again, you are correct there. It's an exponential increase and there is no upper limit to their power. The, the largest I think it was 50 megatons. It was Sar Bomba detonated by Khrushchev in the 50s. It was like bringing a literal piece of the sun down to earth. And I, it raised some questions from Soviet commanders, which was a new thing in the 50s, because if you question Soviet leadership under the Stalin era, that was something that could be bad for your health. But under the thaw, you know, when you're when you're trading cities for cities with a little bomb, like Fat Man and Little Boy, and then you take something that is the equivalent of making a natural disaster. Like, at what point do we surpass accomplishing military objectives? And Justin, you said something earlier about like targeting hospitals and targeting civilians, how it's it's not right. And yeah, I agree. It's not right, but it's not wrong either. It's just war. Yeah. 
Will, I want to backtrack slightly to how you say, you know, at what point um, is the use of nuclear weapons almost not achieving military goals? It's obviously, I mean, I'm sure as you know, Ben, I'm not sure if you've heard, but I mean, there were declassified plans that came out after the breakup of the Soviet Union, whether it was in the 90s or the early 2000s, I believe it was the Poles who, in an effort to, uh, you know, kind of bring themselves out of the Soviet era, um, declassified these plans, and the Soviets had drawn up uh, invasion plans of Western Europe where the entire basis was to nuke major cities and capitals in order to reach, um, you know, Western Europe at a breakneck pace. Uh, I, don't know, I believe it's the Rhine River that they're pushing for, you know, they're hoping to be there in under two weeks. And um, quite literally, I mean, the plan includes, you know, nuking Eastern European capitals that might be under allied control, you know, cities in Germany, cities in France, um, simply to make it all the way to the Atlantic and, and almost, you know, no attain blitzkrieg, atomic blitzkrieg, if you will. Mm-hmm. Attack Germany with their own tactics. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's very interesting, and I'm glad you brought that up, Justin. One of the things I wanted to touch on is after World War II ended, you know, the world was in a shaky position where World War III could have happened immediately. At that point, once Japan was defeated, all of the Axis powers were defeated soundly and handily. And it was one of these situations where as soon as Japan surrendered, the two biggest players in the world, the U.S. the U.S. and the USSR, you know, could look at each other across the table and say, OK, like we are now the biggest threats to one another. We are now natural enemies. You know, conflict is almost unavoidable, especially when their ideologies as far as like society as economics differ so vastly. It's almost a miracle that it didn't happen. But there was a great concern that the Red Army would just sweep across Europe. And, you know, especially in by like 1947, when we'd pulled out, essentially, the only thing really deterring the USSR from doing so was the threat of nuclear weapons, because we had no military presence that would be able to it with all, you know, withstand that. Ben makes a good point. We were devoting such a huge chunk to our economy to sustain our military at the end of World War II. And we just, I mean, World War II was going on like six years and America was involved 42 to 45. We were redlining our economy and we just couldn't keep up that sort of spending. So the government did make the right financial call to demobilize and send everybody home. But then you only have a handful of divisions in Western Europe and you have the entire Red Army, which at this point was the most superior fighting force in the history of war sitting there just on the other side. And this was an army that was designed to slug it out with the German military. I mean, if you look at the Battle of Kursk, what that was like, that was a battle of apocalyptic standards before we had apocalyptic weapons to shoot each other with. And then the weapons would be the only deterrent to keep them from just pushing all the way to the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. It's it's a terrifying thought, especially when we start to like really conceptualize that people were people that are still alive today were around when like you know the threat of hey like at any point the next great war could pop off, and you know that's not to say that it couldn't happen now. You know how how long ago were we seeing Afghanistan almost start World War Three? You know those memes, 
um, mocking political events. But, you know, like mm-hmm. it's not as far away as people think. And the reality that like, hey, these events happened one lifetime ago, like humanity has not evolved drastically in any way within the last 80 years. You know, technologically, society's advanced, but the core principles that make up humanity and that like allowed for the atrocities and the battles that we saw, like those, those still exist in us today. And we like to pretend that it's not a factor. And so that's always fascinated me. I don't mean to make uh, a very antiquated history reference, but um, I just, I feel like it's so fitting. Um, You know, Ben, when I love how Dan, uh, Dan Carlin says that, a 17th or 18th century, you know, envoy from the Ottoman Empire or Western Europe could have easily seen that America and Russia were simply destined uh, to be enemies at this point because they were the greatest threat to each other's powers. And what I had mentioned earlier was it reminds me of uh, when King, the King of Ophiria, Ophiria, I believe, you know, where the term Fyrick victory comes from, is leaving Rome. Um, after almost like a successful run. Obviously, Germany in this case is not successful, but they kind of have front row seats to what's going on between the Americans and the Soviets. And, um, you know, the king of Feria is saying, what a battlefield we are leaving behind for the Carthaginians uh, in this case, uh, you know. Yeah, the Carthaginians and the Romans, you know, he could see what was destined to come. And it's almost like the the other players, the the people stuck in the middle could see that, that these two superpowers were simply bound to clash. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's almost inevitable. And so the fact that like we never came at least publicly or like professedly to blows, you know, one on one is almost it's almost unheard of. And, you know, in a historical sense, like, you know, Carthage and Rome did go to war. the north and the south did go to war. You know, like those that conflict did happen. And, um, you know, we're very lucky that that was not the case in the 20th century. Well, we're not out of the flames yet, you know. The we, question as to whether or not we can handle our weapons technology is only answered when we find out we can't. Correct. Definitely. Absolutely. I'm going to pan down. <laughs> right. Um, Have you guys ever no. heard of Thucydides' trap? I don't believe so, no. What we're talking about actually has a name, this whole idea of great powers destined for war. It's called Thucydides' Trap. I don't know who, well, there's actually Thucydides who coined it, who was an ancient Greek historian on, on par with Herodotus. And according to his model, if you have a, a number one power that is threatened to be surpassed in influence by an up-and-coming second power, they will fight a war and that war according to historical trends will be the most disastrous and bloody war at that point in history of humanity uh the two most recent examples would be both world wars and before that the first traceable example would be when spain was eclipsed by the brand new british empire they fought wars that set standards for how awful things could be and with that in mind what is the next Thucydides trap that you guys think we might have to face. Justin, you want to tackle that one first? Uh, I would say immediately I think of um, China overtaking the U.S. I I, I see nods, you know, that's what you guys had in your head. Um, 
I mean, it's just obvious, you know, Russia is a shell of what it formerly was. It's simply not world player in the ways and means that it thinks it is. Um, you know, its economy is not what it was, obviously, it, it, without satellite states. I mean, it simply can't compete with the likes of Russia and China. Um, and as China continues to grow and grow, I mean, I'm sure you both have seen uh, the recent headline about them testing a hypersonic weapon in August. And we didn't even realize that that was going on. So it's very clear and very obvious that they have capabilities that if we know of, certainly people like us are not aware of because that information is not being disseminated or maybe we don't even know it all. Um, their economy continues to grow, although right now, you know, it is stagnating slightly, but their military power continues to grow. You know, they're looking to expand their influence into the first island chain, eventually hoping to hit the second island chain, um, you know, with Taiwan thrown into the mix, them looking to exert their pressure there, you know, in their own backyard, you know, do I even need to say uh, it's obvious that they're the clear competitor for the U.S. right now, whether people want to admit it or not, or whether it's for the right reasons or the wrong ones. It's simply just the nature of, of power. I, you know, obviously China is the, the most obvious answer. I really want to come back to that because I, I want to have a little war gaming scenario with y'all, but um Two, two other answers popped into my mind. And so I would throw out India as a potential, potential rival. And when you were, when you were describing uh, Russia, you were talking about how it's not what it once was. You're absolutely right. Like it's not, it's not the world player that it used to be, but uh, it's what, you know, you, you described it as a regional power, like in, in, you know, Northern Asia, East, you know, much Eastern Europe, that's a regional power like Russia is significant. India, just by its size alone and its importance to the global economy, is a is in a position where I believe within one century or you know maybe a little bit more could be in a position similar to China is now, where it's it's threatening the world equilibrium. And you know the the best comparison is you know Persia before Darius the Great, like. Persia was kind of considered like the backwater slum of, you know, that portion of the world. And then within Darius the Great's lifetime goes from being king of Persia to king of the universe. Like it, it has the potential for massive growth. And, you know, I think that's mainly due to manpower and natural resources that it has access to. So that, that's, those are my two answers. I definitely want to say something about that, but before, I mean, Will, do you have anything you want to add in there? Yes. I agree that India has the potential to be the power that you think it could be, but I don't think it's going to be as threatening as China. China has the population of India, and it also has the infrastructure to support that population. India has the population and not the infrastructure, and that's going to lead to a collapse internally of some sort or another. So I think they'll have a little bit longer to go and they're probably going to have to work through some major problems before they become a threat to anybody's power over the Pacific. Okay, but like, hear me out. India sneak attacks China. <laughs> they would have to go over the Himalayas. <laughs> right, right. There, there would have to be some, some ambitious moves being played there. Yeah, I'm kind of with Will there. Um, I would definitely agree that, and I wouldn't even necessarily say India would be would be threatening anything. I, I would just say they they would be more so kind of 
asserting themselves on the global stage, um, taking up a wider spot. But right now, economically speaking, they're absolutely strangled by China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I mean, China has made it the main one of the main points of that initiative to completely circumnavigate India. Um, They run all of their trade, all of their railways, uh, their shipping lanes bypass India. You know, it all heads straight to the Middle East, to Eastern Europe, to to Africa. Um, So India definitely has some catching up to do there if they want to even start to rival China in a trade sense or a connectivity sense. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, again, just it it was the only other, you know, it was the only other power that I could see making significant leaps and bounds in a century. Ben, you said you had two examples yeah. and India was one of them. So China being the other. And then the only reason that this came to mind is just to see from a societal standpoint, like have you guys looked at, um, and this is actually more so in India, but like if you look at like Abu Dhabi in the 1970s to today, like, you know, even if you start in 1970 to 71, 50 years, the difference that society was able to do in that 50 years was all brought about by the discovery of a natural resource. You know, all of the money in Saudi Arabia allowed Abu Dhabi to go into, you know, blossom into like one of the the hubs of humanity. And I think that if something like that were to occur, society could catapult itself. And I think India might, you know, if, if, I don't know, uranium is discovered in the Himalayan mountains and India is like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, they you know that that could be that could be a catalyst for societal growth um but that india was my other china and india were my two if oil to the 20th century brought about everything that we know already happened what's going to be the next new resource that happens to us in our lifetimes that catapults us forward again justin you got any hypotheses um there are so many things that there are so many directions that we could take this right now, but uh, I would say if we're if we're focusing on one resource, it would, uh, yeah, will. Oh, I was pointing at the. If there was one resource that I think, are you saying one resource that would drive like our next technological advancement, or one resource that is going to be the source of conflict? The next resource that is going to be the engine for the next great leap forward in technological advancement, not just for the United States, but for the world as a whole. So like I'm what oil say, did to, you know, the combustion engines. Um, technologically speaking. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to throw two. I'm going to throw to, to stay in the vein of the nuclear weapon conversation. I'm going to throw one that I feel like is the most likely flashpoint for an international conflict. And then I'm going to throw one your way that I feel like is uh, going to drive us forward. So in terms of driving us forward, I can't say specifically, I would say maybe something along the lines of cobalt or um, you know something that's absolutely critical in making uh, computer chips, you know, electronic chips, uh, advanced electronics, that sort of thing. Those things that are mined, um, whether it's in Afghanistan or in Central Africa, places like that, you know, as renewable energy becomes more and more, uh, as 
uh, ingrained in our society. I think that is going to be super important. And in terms of a resource, I think that could cause an international conflict, I would say water, specifically speaking uh, between Pakistan and India, um, being that, you know, 80% or 85% of India's water comes from the glacier in Pakistan's borders, or hopefully I don't have that flipped around, but I mean, they're both nuclear powers. And um, if push comes to shove and, you know, 90% of your civilian populace can't have access to fresh water because your neighbor decides to cut it off, uh, I think that could escalate extremely fast. Do you think they'd nuke, them, they'd nuke each other over water and potentially destroy the reason that they're nuking each other in the first place? I don't think that they would nuke each other over water. I just, we, who am I to rule out the fact that those weapons might come into play if, you know, two highly populated countries like that actually engage in a major war because um, I don't foresee, you know, a war like that over something as critical as drinking water to be fought on a small scale. That's a very interesting take. Um... I don't necessarily disagree with you. Um, I think that the importance of water is criminally underrated by those of us blessed enough to never have to struggle to find it. Um, water is one of the foundational aspects of life. And, you know, without it, it doesn't matter if you have nuclear weapons. If the guy that's going to push the button doesn't have water for, let's just say, a week, he's going to die. And, you know, you, you can supplement that with the other beverages and stuff, but the water is such a thing that like, you don't like, we don't understand what it's like to not have water unless you live in California. But even then like first world problems, Oh no, I can't take a bath. Like, you know, like, I don't know. That's just such an, it's just an interesting thing. Um, fun fact during the, uh, the firebombing of Japan kind of segue back. Um, the lakes and rivers in Japan boiled from how hot the air and the fires of all the buildings were that like people would run into the water thinking it would be safe and they would literally get cooked alive because the water temperature just rose. Absolutely insane. That sounds um, horrendous. Um, yeah. Will, I want to pose the same question to you. I know I took us a little bit off track, but if you could think of one resource that is going to drive us forward, that is going to become a point of conflict, whether that may lead to international conflict, nuclear conflict, what have you, uh, what would you think that is? I would have to give you the same answer that you gave me. I think water would be one of them. And then some sort of fundamental element that goes into making computer chips. I mean, we have a, a chip shortage right now. I know almost nothing about it, except for the fact that there is one and that it's making it difficult to buy things like cars and all that. And I would assume that it's not the actual, you know, we don't mine these chips out of the mountain. We have to take like rare earth metals and then manufacture them through a process. And if it's not the, the like, if it's not the shipping lines that are collapsing that are causing the shortage, it would be the fact that we are running, like that the demand isn't meeting the supply. So whatever that may be, whether it be whether it be cobalt or copper, I think it would be a, a rare earth metal. I'll put it that way. Definitely, definitely. To tie to, I mean, just a brief connection there is, uh, I think with, you know, about 85% of all electronic chips produced in the world being produced in Taiwan by Taiwan, 
that adds another level of complexity to the um, potential reunification of China and Taiwan. You know, will the U.S. get involved? Because with chip shortages already hitting us, with supply chain issues already being super prevalent, um, you know, what would that look like with Chinese control of Taiwan? You know, would they put a stranglehold on that? Would that ease some of these supply chain problems? I don't know. So I, I'm going to answer the question a little bit differently. Excuse me. And what I think will be the biggest catalyst for humanity's next expansion, I think it's going to come down to manpower. Like obviously automation is growing and there's things that can be automated. But I think right now, especially given like the 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 response to covid and to working that we're currently experiencing i think a country that's able to proactively deploy its manpower in a way similar to what china is doing with like massive mobilization of their workforces and like massive infrastructure and stuff like you know it's not necessarily the super sexy jobs of being like an accountant or a bank or anything like that but to to be reminded what human beings are capable of building when a lot of them get together and work collectively towards a task. Um, you know, you get to like see some pretty incredible stuff. And right now that's a, that's a very, that's a very difficult thing to do in first world Western countries. And I feel like China and other places in the world that perhaps don't necessarily share our democratic values have a leg up as far as like being able to get their population to do things. And I think if we keep it down this road, the U.S. will be well behind. You know, we're already hurting in our military numbers. We're already hurting and, you know, just the physical capabilities of our population. Now we don't even want to, like, do our jobs. Like, it's, it's just a weird, it's a weird thing. It is. And it is a threat to our national security. And your comment on the, uh, <laughs> your comment on the fact that our military is suffering I would disagree with that. We do not have a huge ground army. We just we just don't. The our military power comes from our navy and our air force. Like I I know I've asked this to Ben before because I think it's such a fascinating statistic. But Justin, do you know who has the largest air force in the world? Uh number 1 is the American Air Force and number 2 is the US Army. US Navy actually. US Navy. Yeah, you, you, you get the point. You get the point. Like the two top spots are occupied by two different branches of the American military. And then our our navy also eclipses that of China. I think we have something along the lines of like 12 nuclear powered aircraft carriers and 50 something nuclear submarines and China has far less than that. China so, has yeah. uh, one operational aircraft carrier, if I'm mistaken, no more than two with two to three more scheduled to be built by the end of the 2030s. But that's so important. Well, I, I absolutely have to agree with you there. Um, you know, Ben, I don't necessarily think you're wrong in saying that the military could use some useful reforms. But if you look at the Air Force, like Will already stated, I mean, it's, it's not even close. And if you look at navies, the uh, PLAN outnumbers the US, sorry, People's Liberation Army Navy, it's China's Navy, sorry. Um, they outnumber the US in, term, in terms of ships, but that's not an important metric to go by. If you look at tonnage, which really uh, describes, you know, the armor class of a ship, you know, how big it is, how many men it can carry, the armament. The U.S. blows out the next 
two to three navies combined. Um, I mean, the ships are simply built to last. They're built to fight. They're not patrol boats. We might not have as many warships, um, but you know, one U.S. destroyer, one U.S. corvette might be worth seven to eight Chinese patrol sure. boats. No, I mean, so it, it's very, it's very pertinent that you bring that up, uh, and this is actually the perfect segue. Um, before we started down this road, we were talking about like the potential big new players on the stage. One of the things that I was saying is I wanted to war game with you guys briefly about what would happen in a war between China and the U.S., assuming nuclear weapons weren't on the table. I mean, you guys are absolutely right. The U.S. Air Force and Navy are, you know, they're the, they're the biggest players on the field by, by a significant margin, and there's no doubt to that. The issue that we then run into is if a war between China and the U.S. breaks out, we are not in a position to adequately respond if China decides to invade elsewhere. Um, and again, define that's not to elsewhere. say... Yeah, define elsewhere. So if China decides to annex Taiwan, or if they decide that, hey, this very, this very desirable portion of Mongolia or this portion of Russia with all of their natural resources looks really good, we, we can absolutely you know, respond with and you know an air air based attack and you know but we have no way of maintaining physical ground control if an, if a if a war like that broke out and obviously you know it, it would be partially responsible for the country if they did invade anywhere else but china's not been shown to be shy about having leisurely grasps on uh, borders of nations um so what what is your what is so, it, like, what would that look like, like well and, and so my, my big question is and it, it kind of harkens back to the nuclear question is is a ground force relevant in the nuclear era and i think vietnam the korean war really showed us that even though nuclear weapons exist it doesn't mean that we get to neglect having boots on the ground because the the fight is not always in momentous days and like bombings and you know naval battles it's in the daily grind of sinking ships sinking you know fighting fighting the fight that's not sexy you know i think that's I think the military a... is the military relevant in the age of nuclear weapons i think it absolutely is absolutely i think it is if too you, if you have no military but a stockpile of nuclear weapons you could be conquered by just having enemy soldiers just walk through your country with no opposition whatsoever, because hundred percent, you know, you won't nuke your own home, you don't, you won't nuke your own home soil unless you know there. It's it's a dire situation, and the end is nigh. Well, and so, but again, I feel like that plays into if China was to aggressively militarily invade any of its neighbors. Again, we have the air force capabilities to you know deter this. But then we're not bombing China. We're bombing our allies or acquaintances' nation. You know Taiwan. Well, if you want to use that example, but again, like it's not China's buildings that are getting bombed, even though Chinese soldiers might be, you know, in there. It just it, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing that we never really had to run into during World War II, where like, you know, you were guilty by proximity if you were German. Germ if you were living in Germany during World War II, it's kind of one of those things like. Sorry, like we're trying to hit your guys' military assets, but if the military is where you are, you no. Know, um, 
and it, you know, it's just, it's just, it just seems like an interesting thing that not a lot of people conceptualize. So I was thinking it. I think it's interesting because there are so many different factors that play into that. Um, obviously Taiwan, a Taiwan scenario is an entirely different animal. And really there's, there's two main outcomes there, two routes the U.S. can take, I, I guess. But before we even go into that, I mean, you have to assess that the U.S. armed forces are designed or have been redesigned, I should say, from the Cold War era on as, for lack of a better term, a global police force. I mean, that we, we are the only country capability to project power uh, the way that we can. I mean, who else has military bases in hundreds of countries, you know, our air force is massive. Our Navy is massive. There aren't, I mean, China simply doesn't even have the capability. Neither does Russia, neither does Japan, Indonesia. No one does to, to just stroll some warships, you know, through the Panama canal or off the coast of California. Whereas that's the norm for the U S you know, we're posted up in the South China sea. We're posted up in the sea of Japan, you know, off the coast of North Korea, we are, we're in their backyard. So, the way the Chinese military has developed is very much so they are meant to play in their own sandbox, if that makes sense. I mean, they have dramatically increased their stockpile of missiles that can reach the first island chain, you know, being Taiwan, um, islands that are close to the Chinese mainland and the Indian subcontinent. Uh, the second island chain, you know, they've upped their missiles there, things that could hit the Philippines, maybe Guam, things like that. Um, so it's not like China could really go anywhere or do anything outside of picking on its neighbors, but it's also not like the U S has the strength or the capability to invade mainland China, at least not right now. Right. It never will. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why in the case of Taiwan, you know, you have two options. China decides to invade and, you know, there are only 15 viable beaches, give or take for an effective, naval landing of Taiwan, you know, so do we get involved directly and fire on Chinese ships, you know, um, or is the play to simply let the Taiwanese fight their own battles and almost become this sort of international pariah? Like if there's no reason that we should fight them there because it may affect our own national security, if our armed forces are critically damaged or, or endangered uh, in, a, in a conflict over there, do we simply let Taiwan take the fall and then China is ostracized from the global community? I mean, the UN, all of our allies, even some of China's allies, they wouldn't let that fly. Um, so it's just a matter of direct versus indirect intervention. Well, I feel it's important to point out that we're talking about this in the wake of the Afghanistan pullout. Absolutely. And the effect that that has had on the U.S. allies. So let's assume that China does, it just straight up invades Taiwan. Taiwan no longer exists and it's forcefully reunited with China. We can't win a land war in Asia. The Western armies just are not designed to fight that way. So, but if we, so then the question is, if we were to amphibiously land in Taiwan, is that as far as it would go? Because then it would still be, let's just, if, how do I put this? We invade in Taiwan to push the Chinese out, and then it's us in Taiwan, and then we're right back to where we started. And then if we just let, the fate of Taiwan be decided by China, how is that going to look to U.S. allies when that's two 
two other U.S. allies that we just kind of let go. First one was Afghanistan, and now it's Taiwan. Everybody's going to start wondering who's next, and they're going to start looking for themselves. And right. it might lead to a breakdown in the international community. Definitely. Definitely. Food for thought, for sure. No, I mean, it's, it's, a, fascinating, it's a fascinating discussion, but it's also a very, I don't know, pertinent discuss like you know like it's not something that we're actively thinking about like what would it look like if hey war with a nation breaks out hey the draft's back like you know we haven't done the draft since vietnam like i'm signed up so am i uh you have to be (laughs) (laughs) should women be signed up for the draft we're not going to go there today okay (laughs) Uh, we're not ready for that this is about Uh, nuclear weapons will all right all right i'm getting ahead of myself I don't Uh, necessarily know that we would utilize nuclear weapons in the case that Taiwan was invaded. I I would argue that China would not nuke Taiwan simply because the whole point is to reunify the country under the one China system and the one China policy. Um, And the strategic importance of the electronic factories and the general populace itself, I think nuking them would defeat the entire purpose of the invasion. I would agree with you. So if we assume that we're not going to nuke them, should, and then China does get aggressive with Taiwan, how do you think we should react? If you were a benevolent dictator of the United States. Benevolent, Taiwan, that's, a, that's a great touch. A benevolent dictator of the United States and Taiwan is invaded by Chinese ground forces. What would you do? That is almost an impossible question to answer. If I, off the top of my head, have to come up with the most reasonable plan of attack, we would know far in advance that a Taiwanese invasion was coming or an invasion of Taiwan was coming. Um, China simply does not have the capabilities right now. You know, If they were to invade Taiwan tomorrow, the amount of civilian ships that they would have to retrofit and enlist would be astronomical. They simply can't move their troops across the strait the way that they want to right now, the way that they safely and effectively can to keep them safe from Taiwanese submarines, mines, beach defenses, um, which is why they say the country could not be invaded until at least 2027, at least from estimates. So knowing that it was coming, I think we would have to respond in in tandem. You know, we would have to stand by our allies as, as ugly as that sounds. And, you know, I don't necessarily have the stomach to see an international conflict between the US and China, but at a certain point, it's kind of just about what you need to do, not what about is right or wrong. And, and who are the Chinese to take away self-determination from the Taiwanese people? And who are we to allow their self-determination to be taken away from them? So. I think even if it was just on a naval scale, we, w- we would have to respond. We would at least have to try to defend the beachheads. Um, I don't know if we would go as far as landing troops, but absolutely, I think we would need to do something. The only problem is being that it's China's backyard, their missile capabilities, you know, uh, if we were outnumbered in terms of ships and forces were being swarmed, I just foresee a nightmare scenario where the U.S.'s national security is put at risk. You know, I said earlier, we can't be touched right now simply because it's not possible. You know, China doesn't have the capability to invade and our capability to defend 
is way too high. But if we defend Taiwan and, and critically uh, mess up, for lack of a better term, our armed forces, there, there might not be much we can do to stop them. So, I mean, that's an interesting thought and one that, again, not, not a common field of exploration thought, but the U.S. has not been significantly harmed in a conflict since the Civil War. Maybe, you know, maybe the Cuban-America War, the, the Spanish-American War. Not you even know, like, the Spanish-American right. War. Uh, and so it's one of these things where, like, America's, for lack of a better term, like, played on everyone else's battleground and come out on top. And it's a situation where, you know, even if we do, uh, even if we are in such a position of authority and like power, you know, it'd be something like the Doolittle raids on Japan during World War II. Like, you know, could China sneak in, you know, a, a sub off the coast of, you know, California off the coast of the East Coast and launch missiles on American cities? Like, even if the damage they do is relatively insignificant from a, from a symbolic standpoint, like, that illusion of safety just you know j distance doesn't equal safety in the 21st century you know like stealth bombers you got like you know like there's all this crazy shit now that we just don't even think about you know it's one of those things where i i don't think we're as secure as we think we are will i don't know if you're thinking the same thing i am i know you're on mute i hope you can hear me um ben your assertion that distance does not equal safety in the 21st century i think that's a really great point and it's really important for people to think about because that wasn't even the case in the 20th century um especially if you look at japan if you look at germany if you look at russia um your distance to your enemy there i mean in the case of the u.s war in the pacific japanese distance from the american homeland um that that played zero to little role whatsoever i mean all it did was uh delay the inevitable i mean and if you look at the Doolittle raid we were bombing the Japanese islands, you know, almost as a direct response to Pearl Harbor. But it's not like that sort of thing did not happen um, to the U.S. Obviously, no foreign power has successfully invaded the U.S. since the War of 1812. Obviously, what I want to point out here, I say successfully, um, the Japanese did take a couple of the Aleutian Islands after Pearl Harbor. You know, they held a couple of these islands uh, starting in 1942 into 1943. I mean, obviously, they were basically worthless. There was nothing to them. But the fact of the matter is they did take a piece of the American homeland. Um, right. In addition to that, there were two instances where Japanese submarines appeared off the coast of California and actually shelled um, mainland institutions. You know, one yeah, being yeah. Uh, an oil field was shelled in California. Um, only It was only a couple rounds, but I mean, the workers didn't even realize what was going on. They thought that maybe there had been an explosion with one of the pumps. Um, and additionally, up in Washington, I believe, uh, at the mouth of one of the main rivers up there, a Japanese submarine had... Um, breached the water and had fired on one of our coastal defenses. Obviously there were no casualties, but what that does is spread mass hysteria amongst not only the, the Western half of our population, but the Eastern half, I mean, the entire country, when you don't feel untouchable anymore, uh, not only are you scared, but you're, you become a lot more desperate. You're a lot more willing to do things that you were not right. even thinking about when you didn't even know you could be touched. That's very true. I don't know if you have anything to add there, Will, or how much you got of that, but I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. 
Well, based on what I heard, America hasn't really been touched by a war aside from what we did to ourselves. And there were a couple of submarines that showed up on our coast and fired a few shells. But by like no foreign army has ever invaded the United States. And that's right. given us that sort of untouchable mentality that absolutely plays into the American mindset. And because of that mentality, when we do fall victim to a couple of shells falling from the sky, it changes like it changes everything. I mean, look at what 9-11 did. 9-11 changed everything for everybody. And only now are we starting to see people come of age who don't remember it. And in 10 years, we're going to like 10, 20, 30 years, how much of our voter base is never going to have seen 9-11 or heard of it or not watched it live on TV. And so I think with that being the only major infringement on the American untouchable uh identity i think we're going to start seeing some big changes here pretty soon minus you know a big war breaking out yeah definitely i mean i don't know it's such it's such an interesting thing again like it's always it's always been interesting to me to see how quickly humans forget um and also just how quickly we're no longer willing to educate about certain things like i know 18 year olds, 19 year olds that have never heard of 9-11 that don't know what the Holocaust is. Like it, it blows my mind. Instead? <laughs> Critical race theory. We're not going to go there this episode. <laughs> uh, gender studies. Um, like I said, uh, but you know, like it, it, it you know, as, you know, as someone whose family members died in the Holocaust, like obviously that's, that's more close to me than to someone who didn't right but the fact that like the history books just gloss over the holocaust or you know what stalin did to his own people or what mao did in china like you know close to as many people that died during world war ii died in china under mao's rule like that's a great leap forward i would would just say not even his rule if you just look at the great leap forward itself you can you can practically get those numbers from there. So then, moving forward, it, it just continues to escalate, escalate. And then, and then with Stalin, it's the five year plan and the Great Terror. I mean, with Stalin, you jump into the Holodomor, um, you know, the Ukrainian famine. Mm-hmm. Right, and so like again, like as three guys who love history and like read about this stuff, like we know about that. But again, my, you know, 20th, 20th century history is not my wheelhouse. Like, there's things that you guys are talking about that I've never heard of. And if I haven't heard of it, you can bet the kids that aren't history majors, that didn't study history in college, that didn't read their you know history textbook front to back every year in school, like they wouldn't know. Like it's just it's so it's it's scary because we're so easy to like forget that you know fifty million people like you and I died in the span of a couple of years by their own country's hand. Like it's just such an interesting thing to to conceptualize. I think the most important thing to note about atrocities is that they don't necessarily pick a side. Um, They're not perpetrated by a certain type of person or by a certain type of people. Um, A lot of times in 20th century context, we talk about World War II, World War I, um, you know, Africa. We talk about Pol Pot and Cambodia, things like that. Um, But it's just important to note that tragedies and atrocities across history whether they occurred uh, for the right reasons or the, or, I mean, there are no right reasons. Let me, let me rephrase right. that. 
you know, regardless of the circumstances that they occurred under, it's important to know that the goal is to not repeat those, whether that is a famine in Ukraine where millions of civilians die, whether that is slavery in America or, you know, segregation, or whether that's uh, Bosnian and Serbian violence in the 90s in the Balkans. Uh, genocide does not pick a side. Uh, you know, and it's important to note that we have to avoid that at all costs, which is part of the reason why we need to not engage in a nuclear holocaust, because there are no winners. Absolutely. Mutually um, assured destruction. Correct. Good old mad. Um, Justin, one of the things you said that really caught my ear, um, I live on the fifth story of a building and there's someone above me. So somebody's trampling around on the roof. If we're apologizing um, for sounds, I'm sorry for my dog. If you've heard it. Sorry, we'll give you a pass. It's all right. The U.S. will give you a pass. Um, that was an epic rap battle at History Line, for those of you that know. Um, but anyway, no, what I, what I wanted to say is, like, genocide is such an interesting topic. And, you know, almost no country alive today has not been the victim or the perpetrator of a genocide. Um, and, you know, obviously you can point to, like, well, I don't know about this small country. But, like, the the, the reason I say that is... It, it's ongoing. There's no, there's no end to the genocide era. Like it's happening now and people are just so quick to forget that. Like you were talking earlier about like, well, how do we respond economically to China if they did this? Well, like, you know, what about like the Weimar Muslims in China right now? Why is the world stage just letting it happen? You know, it, comparisons could be made to the Holocaust. Like why did that just like, was it allowed to happen? And why did no one just like, you know, publicly denounce before, you know, before it was too late, if that makes sense. And so I think, I think what's missing in today's world is the proper education of how this happens and why it happens, but also the instillment in our youth that it's okay to say no to that. I feel like we grow up in such like a sheltered and such a, such a, washed version of history that we are unaware or unwilling to believe that it's happening now. And I don't know. It's just, it's always bugged me. Do you think something like this is ever going to stop? Will we advance enough as a species to say that genocide is a thing of the past? Here's the thing. Genocide is a very trip tricky concept to debate because you have to get your definition of genocide squared away because what's like, your what, definition of genocide taking me back to history 300 baby um for me oh man, i wrote so many papers on this um it's a long definition i'm gonna go with the uh the the here we go. I'm, I'm going to read to you in the. We're pulling up Merriam Webster. Uh, not Merriam Webster. Um, the United Nations definition of genocide. That's even better. There we go. I would okay. say that's probably our best bet. Yes. So. <sighs> da -da 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 -da. Okay. Da -da -da. All right. So the, t the term genocide was coined by Polish lawyer Ralph Lemkin in 1944. In his book, Axis Rule, it consists, da, 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 
developed the term partly in response to the Nazi policies of systematic murder of the Jewish people during the Holocaust, but also in response to previous instances in history of targeted actions aimed at destruction of particular groups of people. Later on, Ralph Lemkin led the campaign to have genocide recognized and codified as an international crime. Uh, and so there's a bunch of definitions, but basically it's the intent to destroy in whole or in part a nation, national, ethnical, eth yeah, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And you can do that physically. You can do that in a couple of different ways, but that's what so I genocide, like to go Genocide on. is on purpose. Genocide is on purpose, and it's the effort to destroy a people based on nation, race, race ethnicity. Eh ethnicity or religion um and the the catch 22 of that is it has to be done in in totality like to a to an effective level where that that population is permanently decimated and so well, you know, not that it's i mean that's the end goal you're saying right it, it but even if it they don't fully succeed like for it to be a genocide it has to be done at such a level that it, it had the threat to do so and so if you debate what constitutes a genocide, like I always think like what Rome did to Carthage, I consider that a genocide. Ge you know, genocidal scholars are say that's on the line because at the time Rome was capable of a genocide, but that's like the best example. But afterwards, after Rome, like it's not until the 19, 1900s that you really see it at full scale. I would argue that we saw it in the 1800s. The Civil War or what? With with slaves with slavery i mean what it wasn't maybe not uh like let's round up everyone and kill them all but there was definitely an attempt to make mass sterilizations um you know mass just apathy towards the slave population you know black yeah. americans um and that's where i would argue that a lot of times we think about genocide as um, like the holocaust where we're just rounding up tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and we're just killing them all in, you know, a four-year span, a five-year span. That is as much a genocide in my eyes, um, in in like a, in the term I'm saying, as, you know, systematically trying to eliminate a people or enslaving them and simply forget about them, for, forgetting about them over hundreds of years, or as small scale as if you look at what happened in the Balkans, um, with yeah. Serbs, uh, you know, killing Muslims in that area in the nineties, I was just reading today, actually, that the Dutch government, um, there was a small detachment of Dutch peacekeepers, uh, in Bosnia, I want to say, and they were completely surrounded by, uh, an overwhelming Serb force and the peacekeepers basically had no choice or so they felt but to assist these rebels um, in rounding up the local Muslims. And that was what they point to now as the first uh, instance of genocide in that conflict. And the Netherlands actually had to come out and apologize for the role that they played in that because they practically helped, you know, help that get off the ground there. So I think regardless of if it's small scale, large scale, short term or long term, uh, if the end goal is the same, then the definition is the same for me. Right. So yeah. by that definition, would the Holodomor be a genocide? That is interesting. And arguably, I would say yes. I would I say know. no. What what okay, okay. So I'm on the I'm on the I'm on the fence. I know that I kind of walked myself into this one. 
Uh, For those that don't know, can you explain the situation? Justin. Yeah, well, you can explain. The Holodomor, it was a uh, side effect of Stalin's five-year plan and industrialization and decolacization. Uh, as he moved the USSR towards industrialization, it took people away from farming and agriculture, and as a result, it led to a famine. Basically, millions, of, millions of people died in the 30s. Yeah, three to and four million. It was million. planned. Uh, like, well, there was intent. He, he actively shipped the remaining agriculture out of Ukraine to the rest of Russia uh, in order to feed, you know, Moscow and the other surrounding cities. Right. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that like it was it was planned well, but like to my understanding, like you know, people came to Stalin and they're like, "Hey, like these people are going to die," and he was like, "That's kind of where I agree with Will is." It's not like Stalin said, like, hey, let's starve the Ukrainians and, and, and just kill them. It was more so of like an apathetic view where they were like, hey, the civilians in, you know, this area in the Ukraine are starving. He pretty much was like, OK, well, keep exporting the grain, you know, that sort of thing. So it, it was not directly because of their race, ethnicity, religion or anything like that. Uh, it was simply because. He, he didn't care. I mean, the five-year plan demanded it. Right. right. Well, and so it's such an interesting thing to me that, you know, the USSR was so formidable during World War II because of its massive size and its massive manpower. You know, we were talking about at the beginning of this, how their army could have swept the rest of Europe off its feet. Like it was, it was, it was at the time the most formidable and dangerous ground army in the world. The, the, the dangerous backside of that is now you know, after Stalin, after this massacre, after, after all the gulags and like the, just the death and especially during World War II, just the, just the, just the loss of life, Russia's still recovering from these casualties. Like so many people died that it significantly affected their society into the 21st century. You know, their population is still below, I believe, 200 million people. Try the 150. Is mm -hmm. it 150? Less than that, I believe. Okay, like, but again, like, that just gives you an idea of, like, the scope and the size of loss. And I think that's just, it's so, it's so pertinent to remember that, like, you know, you hear 50,000 people died here, 5 million people in Ukraine starved, but that's 5 million people like us, like our parents, like our siblings, like, like our friends. You know, this, this affected an entire country, and nobody was spared. I mean, like, young to old you know what 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 were you gonna do and so I, it's it you know that wasn't long ago it's just my thing i just keep coming back to you know the civil rights movement was less than 70 years ago you know it was stalin himself who said one death is a tragedy but a million deaths is a statistic that is yeah. an incredible quote for all the wrong reasons and yes i'm really i'm glad you pointed that out because that is a direct quote right there so well would you would you consider the great leap forward a genocide no it's a tragedy but it's not a genocide because there were no ethnic group was a target of violence or destruction it, it just uh we're gonna do this and if they die oh well you know it's for the greater good so forth but the victims of the great the victims of the great leap forward were not victims of the genocide they were just victims of authoritarianism so one thing I want to I want to put forth and have you guys kind of discuss is 
when you're talking about nuclear weapons, and I'm just going to kind of spring forward to like modern day situations, or let's just even use just Cold War. During the Cold War, you know, we like to think that like if a nuclear war broke out, we'd either proactively bomb someone or we'd bomb them in response. And, you know, in my head, like, you know, what I think would happen is like, if at the height of the Cold War, the USSR launched a nuke and it hit West Germany, the USS, the US would respond and like nuke, nuke, you know, nuke, 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 nuke a city back. But the, the doctrine, like the military plan, if that happened, was total war instantly. And we would have nuked Moscow over 30 times in the first day of a nuclear war with the USSR. And so it's just a it's nuclear a, war or an atomic war, like atomic war. So during okay. the Cold War, what what the what the bombing doctrine was for Russia, for the USSR, you know, that was the US's plan was we were going to hit Moscow for 30 or 40 times within the first day with atomic weapons. And that's not to say that other cities were spared. But it's such a mind blowing thing to think about. OK, think about the destruction that what we dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima received you know, give 20, 20 years of improvement and then do it 40 times on one city. It was just such an interesting thing to contrast like this idea of like retaliation or a city for a city rather than just decimation of not just a city, but of like a people. Like I can't imagine many people would survive 40 atomic bombs in a day. I don't know anybody who could survive 40 atomic bombs. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that you're walking away from that one. I would, I, you know, <laughs> but like even if even if you were theoretically in a shelter where like it could withstand, let's just say ten, could could humanity make something that could withstand forty atomic bombs? I'm sure it's possible. What's the what's that military base in Montana? Not is it NORAD? NORAD, that's in Colorado. Yeah, it's in Colorado. How what what can that withstand? I mean, the entire thing is built underground on giant shock absorbers. Yeah, I would argue that regardless of how many, unless you're literally throwing enough weapons at it to simply like chip away the surface and just eventually dig the base out, you know, and even still, if you expose the base, if you uproot the bedrock and the dirt and everything, and the base is exposed because there's a massive crater, to, to what extent can it withstand a direct blast? All right, so the Cheyenne Mountain Complex was dug 600 meet, uh, under 600 meters of granite in the Cheyenne Mountains in Colorado, uh, and it's designed to withstand a 25 megaton warhead. So basically anything but Sarbamba. Right. That's nuts. Absolutely insane. But, you know, even, even if the structure itself survived, would the human beings underneath survive the earthquake? Yes. W- w- would the sonic pressure just crush our organs? Like, we don't know. We have no idea. Like, people don't understand, like, the wind can literally peel your skin off from an atomic blast. Like, I think if you're in the bunker, you might be okay. I mean, I don't know. Will, what do you think? I think you'd be fine. The damn, I mean, the damn thing was built to withstand a direct nuclear bomb. So, I mean, and, like you know, I mean, our our weapons technology is so out of league with everything else that we have under our belt, and that there isn't anything 
in the farthest reaches of science fiction that could withstand being hit with every single nuclear weapon that we have on the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not Captain America's shield. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well. Yeah. Captain America's shield will be fine, but Captain America will die. Right. He's definitely not going to be all right. <laughs> he curls up in a little ball behind it, and he's fine. Just pokes his head <laughs> uh, amazing. Yeah, I was I mean, before it, we're talking about something that makes nuclear weapons obsolete. How soon before we're talking about something that makes, that makes them obsolete? Yeah. Uh, are you talking about in terms of more destruction or in terms of something that makes them obsolete because it's a defense system? In terms of more destruction. Uh, that's a great question. Unless I would say the, the, the only thing that springs to mind, because if we're talking about hypersonic weapons... Um, obviously you still attach a nuclear warhead to that. It's just all about the delivery time, you know, the speed that it approaches your target with the accuracy and the detectability. Um, that's not necessarily going to make a larger blast or anything. It just means that your missile is not going to be intercepted in terms of something that's going to cause more destruction. I don't think we'll see that until we start, uh, fielding orbital weapon systems, yep. you know, the second that we can either field nuclear weapons in space or it's a directed energy or just something that utilizes mass and force um i don't i don't think we'll see anything top nuclear weapons until that i would agree with justin the i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out an interesting answer have you guys read the novel ender's game i've seen the movie i haven't actually read or seen it Okay, so I have not seen the movie, so I don't know what happened in the movie. I read the, the novel, and the novel is phenomenal. Um, but the novel is about Ender controlling these militaries through simulations in these battles against this alien hive. And what we've come to find out and realize, and what he realizes after he completes his mission, is that he's actually from remotely controlling these, these, these battles. And this alien race lives so far away from humanity that they have to like basically freeze and like put their people in a time warp. And so, you know, as he gets progressively further in this campaign, his technology, his, his fleet, his people, they get older and less effective. But what they were still finding is that even with their older model weapons, even with their older model ships, he was able to use what, you know, relatively modern nuclear weapons to such great effect that it didn't matter. Like it's one of these things where like, even if something significantly more powerful than a nuclear bomb is somehow created, which I, I believe I agree with Justin, where like, unless you're talking about like accelerating asteroids in outer space towards a target, I can't really see a way that, you know, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a physicist or anything like that. So maybe I'm just talking up my booty. Um, but, you know, unless you're talking about chucking rocks at planets from outer space, um, I can't really see it topping it, but it doesn't really matter. Like, if you drop a Tsar Bomba, I don't think it's any different than getting hit from an asteroid from outer space. Like, I think the decimation and the, the destruction and the damage it would cause, you know, you could argue it would kill slightly more people, but like the end all outcome would be the same, which is just total destruction of an area. What's your and, taste? Well, oh, sorry, Ben. <laughs> no, you're good. No. 
I think Ben Ben does make a good point, you know, and we can draw contrast to atomic weapons versus nuclear weapons. Whether no matter which one you're using, you're still going to be trading cities for cities and armies for armies at that point. So um, we could also draw it back to uh, what I said earlier about surpassing, accomplishing military objectives. If your only goal is to just make a bigger boom, you know, I mean, we could we could with a single bomb, we could theoretically blow up all of China. What good would that do? I mean, we need something to take for ourselves in victory. And if there's no loot and there's no spoils, then as you, Justin said, it would just be a pure victory. And would it have all been for naught? So, I mean, it, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. And I think when you're talking about trading cities for cities, the delivery system is very important. And I think that's why, like what Justin was saying, with like hypersonic delivery systems, like you know, a nuclear missile is great unless it gets intercepted in open airspace and it does, it's not able to achieve its target, you know? Um, and so I think that's going to play the biggest role moving forward is ways to combat, you know, how do we stop enemy projectiles from hitting us and getting ours to them? And I am the least qualified individual on earth to weigh in how that works. Um, so I'm not even going to go there. Um, is there any other things on like nuclear weapons you guys wanted to touch on? And we kind of bounced around to genocide and the ethics of total war. I think we have just, enough just, for our first episode. I think we covered a lot for our first episode. Just your uh, just your everyday light airy topics. We did avoid gender studies. <laughs> That's a win in my book. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean if you guys are good to cut it there i'm good to cut it there i'm good um I'm good if there's any final thoughts now is the time see you next time all right boys it was a pleasure uh check out justin woodcock at uh on point financial management here in richmond uh check out new horizon solar solutions for all your solar needs and then uh nice plug nice plug right there and then uh if any, if any museums in chicago want to hire my boy will That would be cool. (laughs) We would love that. Yeah, we would love that. All right, boys. uh, It was awesome to get to hang out with you. I'm going to call tonight. Yeah, thank you for the dialogue, gentlemen. Of course. It's always a pleasure. Pleasure. See you guys later. I stole that line. Yeah, yeah, yeah.